I think we're headed towards a multipolar world. I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to look something like the 1890s and 1900s, which were very, very good years. You had an energy transition happening. You had incredible tech innovations. You had a lot of geopolitical competition, but even Britain and Germany were trading more and more and more with each other right up until the guns of August started. So I think that's the kind of world that we're entering. And I'm optimistic about the next five to 10 years. I am petrified about the world my children are gonna inherit, I worry a lot about a US-China war 15, 20 years down the line, but for the next five to 10 years, I'm far from being in a fetal position. I think there's a lot of opportunities out there and I like the risk reward on a lot of these multipolar opportunities. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is becoming clearer by the day. And in our Global Macro series, I want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of important issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guests today are content creators at Lycaon, where they write a monthly research publication focused on both geopolitics and global macro, and how these worlds intersect. So please enjoy my conversation with Jacob Shapiro and Roger Hurst. Jacob and Roger, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today for what I'm sure will be an enlightening conversation as part of our Global Macro series, perhaps with some predictions that may shock or surprise some of our listeners. But since it's your first time on this podcast, perhaps I could ask you to Maybe set the stage a little bit by providing uh, some context for our conversation, um, but just sharing a few highlights uh, from each of your backgrounds, because I think that will be relevant for the conversation and for some of the topics we're going to talk about afterwards. So I don't know, Jacob, if you want to jump into it first. Sure, happy to. Um, so uh, Roger and I uh, joined in sort of concentric circles at Lycaon, where I'm geopolitics editor and where he's macro editor. But so the the other parts of my background um, are that I work directly with companies helping them manage their global supply chains via a consulting firm called Perch Perspectives. And then also I'm a partner and director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. So we're an investment advisor and my money is where my mouth is on a lot of this stuff, where we're, we're directing client assets based on some of these geopolitical insights and some of our things internally. I've been doing geopolitics, it's crazy to say, for over a decade now. I started at Stratfor. Um, I helped stand up geopolitical futures with George Friedman around 2016, 2017. Um, but the last couple of years, I've gone from 
and sort of that mass consumption geopolitics to really more for investors or more for supply chain executives and things like that. And the partnership with Lycan and Rogers to try and offer that geopolitical part of the equation to macro research and thinking about macro because it's, I mean, in our opinion, it's, it's a real missing piece. So, Absolutely. Yeah. What about you, Roger? My, yeah, my background, I, I sort of, um, my, most recently I've been working as managing editor for um, a section of Real Vision, um, working with third party um, clients, i.e. mainly financial institutions on helping them messaging um, and creating some content for um, particularly video media. Um, but prior to that, I worked um, within various um, investment banks, the likes of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, where I mainly covered hedge funds, so macro hedge funds long, short hedge funds from an equity derivatives perspective. And the lastly, at Deutsche Bank, I was doing um, sort of macro strategy, again, from the equity derivative perspective, it became more and more multi-asset um, macro strategy in sales, again, talking with hedge funds, but also those multi-asset institutions. So I've got about 30 years um, experience um, across all of those spaces. And I think what was really interesting in this challenge that we've got now is that um, for many, many years, the mantra had always been, you can't trade geopolitics. Um, but I think that's changing because if you take out the geo, the politics is certainly becoming much, much more embedded in the way financial markets operate. And inevitably, part of that is the geo part of it as well. So I think this is this sort of interesting um, confluence of the macro and the geopolitical that probably means it's relevant for the first time um, in 20 years to bring these together as a, as a sort of trading and, and outlook thesis. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's uh, it's great. And it's great to have uh, both of you here today, of course. Now, I think a lot of investors are hearing this word uncertainty every time they turn on the financial media, you know, and perhaps it is being used a little bit too much at the moment. But we can't, and, and often, I guess, it's, it's used when people can't explain what the markets are doing. But I wanted to ask both of you maybe, and maybe to start off with you, Jacob, kind of from your perspective at the moment, where does the uncertainty really lie? Sure, and, and so our latest um, edition of the Lacking on Newsletter really goes into this. Uh, we, we are sort of honest about the fact that it's the second edition of, of, this, of this research product that we're putting out, and we're saying, hey, there's a lot of uncertainty here, and we don't feel good about telling you to go which direction or not. Um, but there's two main areas where I think that uncertainty is lying. And even since we published um, that edition, I think we've had some progress on one end and maybe even more uncertainty on the other end. So the, the area where I think we have some more certainty, but which is still, I think, an open question is China. Um, there's the COVID-19 reopening there. You're seeing Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party for whatever reason, whether it's because he got his third term or because the economic growth figures were scary or maybe it's the real estate crisis. We can try and parse out the reasons. Uh, but China's reopening seems to be going okay. And their healthcare system, I, I wouldn't say it's great, but it seems to be holding. We're not getting mass protests in the streets and hospitals being overrun by strange new variants, which is you know something that was really on the table even a month or two ago. So coming out of the Lunar New Year holiday, it looks like China's reopening is getting a little bit is starting to actually get some legs, and we'll see if it can continue going forward. That's sort of big uncertainty number one. Uncertainty number two, in some ways, has gotten even more uncertain in a couple of weeks since we put out that report. Um, because the Russia-Ukraine war, I mean, it's even a couple of weeks ago, I think the, the, the market was thinking that there was going to be a truce or a frozen conflict of some sort. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've got you know, the Americans and the French and everybody else saying they're going to they're going to deliver more ammunition and artillery shells to the Ukrainians. Um, we're going to deliver tanks, apparently, to the Ukrainians in the hundreds, maybe even thousands. Um, Politico is already reporting that Western officials are talking about fighter jets and air support. Now, 
six months ago, tanks were completely off the table, then they were on the table. So it's sort of the same position with fighter jets. Right now, they're completely off the table, but you can imagine you know, a couple months from now, maybe they're on the table. And on the Russian side, you have a power that does not look like it's slowing down anytime soon. Russia's mass mobilizing people for a meat grinder conflict and just throwing numbers um, at Ukraine's technological superiority and hoping that the Russian tactic on war, which is just we're going to outlast you and we're going to be we're going to be okay with casualty rates that are far higher than you can stomach. It seems to be they're betting on that going to be the way forward with the war. Um, so, you know, gun to my head, I'm thinking we're actually probably getting a major escalation of the Russia-Ukraine war here in the next couple months. But if you told me there was a frozen conflict, a la 2014, if you told me that Ukraine overwhelmed Russia's military forces and you know, took all the all the territory back until 2014, uh, that was taken after 2014 and beyond, I'd believe that. There's just so much uncertainty around the Russia-Ukraine war right now that in some ways it's hard to think about the commodity markets that are related to Russia and what do you, what does European energy look like? I mean, when you start to sort of build out um, from that that big an uncertainty at the core of everything, everything, it's really hard, I think, to to make confident theses, at least at a macro level. So th- those, I think, are at least for me the, the two major sources of uncertainty. Yeah, and that that makes sense. Uh, I, I of course didn't know that you would pick those two, but I'm kind of glad you did because I think we've got uh, I've got a, certainly a lot of questions in in both regions. Uh, so, um, but before we get to uh, any of that, from a global macro point of view, Roger, how do you how do you see the world? Uh, where do you think the uncertainty lies in in terms of that uh, side of things? I think it actually stems from a sort of almost an absolute certainty last year of recession. And it felt like it was you know, this easy forecast to make. And as times progressed, um, that certainty has started to dissolve into numerous very, very plausible outcomes. And I think part of it is, you know, we've got this recency bias where we were used to COVID and prior to that, there's that spat at the end of 2018. And even the great financial crisis 2008, when it really, really happened, it happened in H2 2008 and the beginning Q1 of 2009. We're so used to things happening so quickly that because the recession everybody wanted and has been predicting for the best part of a year hasn't yet arrived, that's created this uncertainty. So what we've now seen is the certainty of recession now actually becoming um, a plausible scenario where we still get a recession early and it's a natural recession from where we are today, a natural progression towards recession. Or equally plausible is that actually things do quite well in Q1 and maybe Q2 and bounce. And the Fed actually has to create a recession or at least tighten financial conditions once more um, in order to ensure that the inflation genie gets forced back into that bottle. So for me, the uncertainty is simply that the sequencing has taken a long time from a place where everybody had a very sure footing 12 months ago to something now where I could say both a downside and an upside um, scenario are equally plausible. Yeah, no, I'm great point. Now, before we dive into some of these things, I mean, you already alluded to it that, you know, you come from fields of expertise that was kind of put in the background for a couple of decades because nobody really cared about global macro or geopolitics. Um, But as we know, this has certainly changed in the last year or two. And uh, maybe a little bit of a cheeky question here, but I'm curious what you do if kind of each of your analysis kind of disagree, uh, disagree or there is a conflict. And I can't as we speak, I can't think of a concrete example where that would happen, but I'm sure you know what I mean, where the, the the one force would be dominant potentially. How do you settle that between you when you kind of uh, have to decide where, where you th- what you think will be the, the, you know, 
that have the ultimate impact, uh, say, on the markets, for example? So it's a great question. And it's not, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it's not that geopolitics wasn't relevant. It's just that geopolitics was really boring and it was really just one insight. The United States is the top power in the world, full stop, and nobody's challenging them. So if the United States is the top power in the world, then it's globalization on American terms and everybody's marching to the beat of the Washington consensus and everybody wants to be part of the WTO and be nice with the IMF. I mean, it was sort of that one geopolitical insight. And for 30 years, guys like me were just saying like, yep, United States still top power in the world. Like that's the geopolitics. That's where that's, that's all it is. As we kind of go forward, all of that is changing as in flux. Um, I think part of the thing though, and this is where geopolitics sometimes goes off the rails is that geopolitics is really a discipline about, it's not about trying to understand investments or making good trades. Geopolitics is about understanding power dynamics between nations. Now you can make interesting investment decisions if you know where those power dynamics are going, but geopolitics goes off the rails when you just say, oh, I have a geopolitical insight and I'm going to buy, I'm going to go long soybeans, or I'm going to buy this company and I'm going to go long. It almost never actually works that way. So uh, there are oftentimes, I think that Roger and I will disagree on various things. And part of the discipline of geopolitics is finding the center of gravity of an issue. And sometimes that center of gravity will be politics or security. In the Russia-Ukraine war right now, it's all geopolitics and has nothing to do with markets. There are plenty of other examples. Let's say the relationship between Mexico, the United States, and Canada, where you know a geopolitical analyst is going to come out here and say, "Oh, well, you know, Mexico and the United States, long-term geopolitical rivals, and there's migration. This and the Canadians were once sponsored by the British, and they, you know, the United States government used to have an action plan for a Canadian invasion of the Northern United States." That's all nonsense. Like everything that's happening between the United States and Canada and Mexico today is trade and macro and who's making money and where the profit margins are and whether you can get labor from one place to the other and labor reforms and things like that. Um, So I think any good geopolitical analyst is aware of their limitations and works with somebody like Roger or where I work at Cognitive Investments, goes to the guys who see the macro, have the investment theses, and inserts that insight into their perspective. And then it's in that sort of cross-pollination that you actually start generating some variance with maybe what the market is thinking. That That's how I would view it. Yeah, from my perspective, it's, I think, what I'm always looking for is a framework. And so actually to have discourse and, and actually disagreement is actually quite helpful. There's always this danger when people are um, looking at markets that they want the trade idea. And in 20 years, the trade idea was useful to maybe 10% of my clients. The other 90% would say, not my time horizon, can't address those markets, etc. So for me, it's much more important to have a framework. And therefore, the framework is valuable to everybody, a day trader through to a long-term pension investor was that trade, single trade idea is not. But actually, what really helps is to be able to say, look, my framework is this, but this is the risk. So my framework might be, I'm bearish Europe. And um, and Jacob might say, yes, but Roger, you've got to think that if we get through the next few months of energy crisis unscathed, then actually Europe's in a very strong position. And what we need to do and what I want to do is always put out these, these ideas. I don't want to be someone who says, this is what's going to happen. I want to go, this is what I think, but these are the risks to my views because of what Jacob thinks. And so that disagreement, that discourse helps the framework and hopefully for Um, people are investing, it helps them understand from their own perspective, which bits they feel are the most relevant to their framework, their time horizon, their trading strategy. 
Now, again, before we dive into all the nitty gritty stuff, I'm, I'm still staying a little bit on the uh, kind of the big picture stuff because one of our previous guests, very popular on the podcast, on many podcasts, Peter Zion, I know that both of you are familiar with his work. You know, he has some very strong views that we are seeing this radical shift in the world, both in terms of geopolitical borders, but also as demographics are in for kind of a seismic shift in the coming years in some of these key countries. So I'm just curious, do you agree with his overall view or or maybe do you kind of disagree with what, what Peter thinks and has described? Um, maybe, Jacob, you need to go first here. I'll go first, but in some ways I'm more curious to hear what Roger's answer is to that question. But it's funny, I have a client who literally... Uh, who, who heard Peter on a recent podcast and for my weekly report for them just asked me to write a column uh, uh, responding to one of Peter's interviews. So I actually have all of this fairly well locked in my head. The first thing I'll say is I worked with Peter at Stratfor. I was a lowly intern making coffee when Peter was one of the top analysts at Stratfor. Um, so in a certain sense, to me, Peter's an elder statesman of geopolitics and guys like me don't have careers if Peter wasn't blazing a path for using geopolitical analysis. So um, I'm going to offer some criticism of him, but that criticism actually actually comes from a place of deep respect um, because it's, it's analysts like Peter who made me want to have the career that I have. Um, I'd also say, I mean, there's sort of two macro areas where Peter and I differ just from a methodological level. The first you already alluded to, which is demographics. Um, Peter really likes demographics. He thinks demographics are destiny and will make a lot of deterministic arguments, I would say, based on demographics. I don't dismiss demographics at all, but demographics are really, really tricky. It's very, very hard to know what a given population is going to think about having kids five years from now or 10 years from now. It's also very hard to know what demographic profiles are going to do um, at a geopolitical level. One of my favorite examples of this, if you go back to mid to late 1920s Germany, their population pyramid looked absolutely terrible. One of the Nazi party's first campaign slogans was about trying to actually get German women to have more children before they got to killing the Jews in the gas chambers and everything like that. They wanted to improve German demographics. Um, if you had just looked at a demographic pyramid of Germany in the late 1920s, you would have said that country's going to collapse into nothingness in 10 years. They didn't collapse into nothingness at all. They almost conquered the world. So I, it's, I, I use demographics. I think it's important to engage with demographics, but there's also a lot of uncertainty in demographics. If you look at the UN uh, projections on demographics, there's a low, medium, and high variant with those things. You can cherry pick any of those variants you want to make almost any argument that you want. So demographics, I sort of have a bugaboo about. The second is that uh, the title of Peter's um, new book that he has out is, I, I think it's something like The World is, is Ending or, or the, the Ending of the World or something like that. The End of the World like is Just a Beginning. Right. The end of the world is just beginning. The title of my my report that I sent to my client this week was The World is Not Ending. And not only do I not think the world is ending, I, I think Peter and I see time horizons quite differently. I think Peter sees a lot of disruption and, and uncertainty and risk here in the next couple of years and then thinks we're going to get to the broad sunlit uplands of U.S. hegemony returned on the world order. I actually see the exact inverse. I think we're headed towards a multipolar world. I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to look something like the 1890s and 1900s, which were very, very good years. You had an energy transition happening. You had incredible tech innovations. You had a lot of geopolitical competition, but even Britain and Germany were trading more and more and more with each other right up until the guns of August started. So I think that's the kind of world that we're entering. And I'm optimistic about the next five to 10 years. I am petrified about the world my children are going to inherit. 
I worry a lot about a U.S.-China war 15, 20 years down the line. But for the next five to 10 years, I'm far from being in a fetal position. I think there's a lot of opportunities out there, and I like the risk-reward on a lot of these multipolar opportunities. The only other thing I'll say is, you know, Peter said a lot of different things in that podcast. It would take us a whole hour just to, to go through everything. But the two points where I would disagree with him the most, he said China is going to be gone in 10 years. I I admit that that is a possibility. I think it's a fringe possibility. Um, I think it is much more likely that China has a couple years of trouble, but then emerges a little bit stronger than it is right now. Again, if you go back to demographics, Peter would look at a demographic pyramid of China and say, this is terrible, they're collapsing. I'd grant you that the demographic pyramid looks terrible, but keep in mind that there are hundreds of millions of Chinese people living in the interior of the country who have not enjoyed the prosperity that the coast has in the last decade or so. And I think one of the reasons that Xi Jinping has named himself emperor de facto is because he wants to redistribute that wealth from dudes like Jack Ma and all these others to the guys in the interior. So that's hundreds of millions of people who currently live on something like 3 to $6 a day who, if the Chinese Communist Party can redistribute that wealth, give you the same sort of equivalent of a demographic dividend without having to have a bunch of children. So I think this idea that China's collapsing, that Xi Jinping is Mao, I don't see any of that. I think that analysis is wrong. The second is that Peter talks a lot about food crises and about how in the next decade we could lose, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people to potential famine because of the loss of you know, industrial agriculture um, inputs. Again, that is a fringe possibility. I can't tell you that that is completely impossible, but um, people like going back to Thomas Malthus in the 1700s all the way up to today have been saying that we're not going to be able to produce enough food for the global population for literally hundreds of years, and they have never been right. And they've never been right because they just assume that technology is going to stay the same as it is today 10 years from now. And that's just not the case. There are so many interesting things happening in genomics, in alternatives to fertilizer. If we even cut down on food waste that we grow by about half, we could probably feed the world 1.5 times over, if not two times over. So those are sort of two key areas where I think Peter is wrong to sort of give that sort of end of the world sort of scenario that's happening. The last thing I'll just say about Peter, and then I, want, I would love to hear what Roger has to say about this, is that all that said, I didn't think Russia was going to invade Ukraine. And Peter did. He nailed that. He got that 100,000% right, and I got that 100,000% wrong. So I've also had my fair share of humble pie in the last you know, 12 to 18 months. And so I, I can recognize that even though I'm, I'm offering that critique of Peter, and even though there are ways in which we differ from, from methodologically right down to specific forecast, you, know, you have a recent history where Peter was right and I was wrong on something. So I'll, I'll trust your listeners that they're smart enough to figure out um, you know, which one they want to listen to and how they build their own perceptions based on not just me and Peter, there's others like us out there, Marco Papich, Roger Baker. There's a whole school of geopolitical analysts out there. And I think you have to listen to all of us and then come to your own conclusions. Yeah, and and we have um, you know we have had Marco on us as, as well, and 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 I think he certainly shares your view that maybe the world isn't ending uh, right now. But uh, but love to hear your uh, your thoughts, uh, uh, Roger, about this. Um, well, I mean, you both alluded to it, and uh, you know, I. I I grew up in the 1980s listening to the Smiths and all the time in this world of markets, I always come down to a famous song title, which is How Soon Is Now? And this is the thing with a lot of geopolitics is what is the time frame? What is the time scale? Because as investors and traders, okay, there are those who are thinking about their pensions long term. But most people think about, you know, something like a two week to maybe a two year horizon and even embedded in lots of pension funds, it's a multiple two year horizon. 
But what we just listened to from Jacob is two years is short term, 10 to 15 years is maybe long term. And so these things, in, often in geopolitics, operate in a relatively glacial time frame compared to things in investing in markets. And this is, again, one of the reasons why we went from certainty to uncertainty in terms of recessions. It's, it's taken 12 months. And for most investors over the last 10 years, that just feels like a lifetime of investing. So I think the problem with, with a lot of this is when we're looking at these opportunities and pretty much every time that myself and Jacob are disagreeing, it's basically what we think is now. And my idea of now is, will I make money on something that expires in three weeks' time on the futures market? Whereas Jacob might be thinking, is there a buying opportunity in the second half of 2023 for the next 10 years? And I think that, that for me is where, um, you know, when we, when we talk about these different views, the world's going to end. Well, over what time period? Even the, the hyperinflation was 1919 to 1923 in Weimar Germany. It's four years. Now, looking back, that was a tiny little, uh, it was a short, short time frame. But in that four-year period, that was, for a lot of people, a very long period of time. And so for, for me, and investing for macro, and one of the sort of difficulties that we will have all the time is putting a macro overlay onto a geopolitical kind of framework where one is operating as fast twitch muscle and the other one is going for a marathon. Yeah. And and by the way, maybe for clarity, maybe some of our listeners have not heard our conversation with Peter. I don't think when he says the world is coming to an end, he means that it's coming to an end. He just means that we're in, you know, heading into a new regime and, and the world that, you know, the three of us know and a lot of people know is is the one that's kind of coming to an end. Now, for me, there are few places where it's kind of a little bit easier to see how global macro and geopolitics uh, intersect. And that's in some of the big markets we all like to follow, like the currencies, the interest rates, gold stocks, uh, to some extent. And I would love to hear your views on these markets and how they may be impacted. But before we go there... I actually really want to like to start with um, exploring kind of the regions of the world, perhaps. And I'm not an expert, but I would like to start with China since you brought it up, uh, Jacob. So, um, and I think also, I think it's pretty clear, uh, it was certainly one of your uh, points in, of, of interest, um, that it will play a role in what happens uh, from here. And so the first question I actually would love to hear a little bit about, and that is, can we even rely, I mean, in order to assess China, we have to kind of maybe look at some data. And I'm just curious whether uh, you feel you, we can rely on, on Chinese uh, data and, and, and all their revisions or how you account for, for maybe they have another way of, of dealing with data in the first place. Uh, well, of course, we all know that 72.8% of all statistics are made up, right? Um, I don't think that China is particularly special in making up statistics. I don't trust government statistics from anywhere. Now, I will admit that China is a little more <laughs> uh, stark about it or a little more, uh, it's, it's a little Creative. more obvious when you're looking. Uh, yeah, I mean, create whatever word you want to use there. Like, it's fairly obvious that China is lying when it's making up statistics, but all countries lie. Um, I don't know if you saw, I was trying to look at the Eurostat inflation print today, um, and I couldn't figure out why Germany wasn't included in the Eurostat flash PDF that came out. And it turns out Germany says they haven't been able to submit their inflation figure because of IT problems or something like that. And they couldn't get it in on time. A very small thing relative to, you know, China miscounting 150 million people in a census. But the point is just the same. Like, I don't trust 
any data. I trust all data against anecdotal observations, against what people are telling me on the ground about all those things that I can see with my own eyes. So uh, in some ways, I find China's, uh, the fact that they produce so much data actually gives me something to work with because I know what they want me to think. I know which direction they're trying to lead me. It's different than a country say like Japan, which it sometimes is just a complete and total black box. It's really hard to get your hands on anything that is meaningful or a country that is disorganized to say India or Nigeria, where good luck if you're going to get your hands on data at all. What I find interesting about uh, about China and Chinese data is that we're always very cynical about it um, because we always expect them to juice it positively. But what's good about that is that every now and again, when you see something which is actually an outlier negatively, you find you can sort of say, well, they're trying to tell us something through the data. They're actually trying to say, okay, we're pushing sentiment in a certain direction. And you know, over the last four or five years, it's this constant cynicism where if you quote Chinese data, nearly everybody who listens will say, oh, but we don't believe it. So what I tend to do is look outside of China. And so, for instance, it's things like the performance of those markets, which are very, very interlinked to the Chinese market. So, for instance, Korea is a major exporter to China, obviously being geographically located, being a massive uh, industrial exporter, relatively open economy. When the Korean equity market is doing poorly, it's normally telling me that maybe the direction of China has shifted. And we saw this very distinctly in 2018 when, um, and, and this is something that's very relevant to today as well, which is every time China starts to sort of juice its credit, which people see as being positive for growth, they assume buy commodities, by cyclicals. And it's this view that 6.5% GDP growth or 6% or whatever it is, is always and everywhere equal. So 6.5% a year ago is equal to 6.5% in a year's time. But it's not because if it's 6.5% focused on urban growth, that's positive commodities, positive for global macro, global commodity stories and cyclicals. But if, as in 2018, where we saw a peak in urban fixed asset investment, it's now focused on supporting perhaps um, the bubble or trying to deflate sensibly the bubble in real estate, support the small um, businesses that are over leveraged, et cetera. Then that 6.5% GDP growth will be very, very different for global risk assets. And we saw those big open exporting economies and equity markets really performing quite badly in 2018. Germany was one in particular, Korea was another. And as of today, we've got China reopening. And yes, the Korean equity market is doing well, but it should be outperforming its peers like the German DAX, and it's not. So what I tend to do is I tend to look at some of these regional markets which have connectivity to um, the, uh, the Chinese market itself and try and infer out of that maybe a slight change in direction. So, for instance, right here, right now, people talking about Chinese opening up, getting very, very, very bullish commodities, and you should be up to a point. But if they're opening up, it's more about services and less about goods and commodities. That's what we saw in the US when the US opened up. And so far, that big industrial exporting nation, Korea, is not outperforming, which makes me feel that perhaps this is not the sort of opening up that a lot of people have put their hats on for being the super boost to commodities rather than just a basic boost to commodities. So that's how I look at China and its data. It tends to be look at its relationships externally rather than necessarily its data internally. Now, staying with China a little bit, and you already touched on it, um, and, and, and Roger actually just spoke a little bit uh, about it, but from your point of view, Jacob, this whole reopening story, are investors getting a little bit ahead of themselves, do you think, or uh, is it going according to plan? One of the things I was thinking of was that 
yes, we know that they are now letting uh, COVID run uh, free, more or less. Uh, however, I would imagine that people in the cities are probably a little bit better uh, equipped to deal with it uh, compared to uh, the rural part of China. Um, I don't know if that has an influence um, or not, um, but 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 are you, uh, I mean, do you foresee any challenges with this uh, reopening uh, story? I mean, Roger pointed out that obviously it's probably more services than than uh, manufacturing right now, but uh, is there anything else from your perspective that we should be aware of? Well, look, I, I was really worried about reopening and was unsure which direction to go because I could see a really compelling case for a downside scenario. This is a country that has not been able to produce um, effective vaccines at scale, which for all of its authoritarianism has not even been able to get the bad vaccines into the arms of elderly Chinese people. You know, we've got one child policy, which means we've got hundreds of millions of only children who revere their elders, who don't have good hospitals that they can go to and where you have, you know, um, an atmosphere with pollution and all the other things like it's just sort of tailor made for a bad sort of way to go with COVID-19 on top of there might be a mutation to the virus. What if it becomes more deadly? Does this overrun Chinese healthcare systems? I think these are some of the reasons that the Chinese Communist Party stuck to zero COVID as long as they did. I think they were afraid of, of the bottom falling out. I think what we can say is that it looks like they're getting through the worst of it. It's still a little early yet, but the initial indicators are, as you said, it's spreading around. They're doing okay. They're managing. People are spending money. People are taking flights again. PMI is looking good. All those other things seem to be going well. But the reason I would say that people um, uh, shouldn't get too ahead of themselves with the reopening play is great. So let's say reopening goes great and everything is gangbusters. Um, that means we still have to deal with the real estate crisis and declining property values. And that means we still have to deal with the United States um, you know, constricting China even more on the trade war front. So just this week, we've got the United States saying no more exemptions for companies that are going to export to Huawei. We've got um, the White House leaking left and right. They're, they might go after the entire, the entire Chinese tech sector in general. Um, if Joe Biden is going to do anything uh, in the next couple of years, he's going to have to do it with a Republican House. And one of the only things Americans can agree on is that China's the boogeyman. So that probably means any industrial policy or anything that gets through the House is something that is going to be created in the guise of China. And uh, or in the guise of, you know, um, combating Chinese influence. And China doesn't have any good options right now. They're still incredibly dependent on imports of Western technology. They are still incredibly dependent on exporting to different Western countries in terms of their economy. So um, even if you get the reopening play, we've got a real estate crisis bubble that has to work itself out and the trade war. So any way you slice it, it looks like I don't think it's one story for China. It, it looks like a difficult couple of years ahead for them. Um, that doesn't mean there is an opportunity there. It doesn't mean, to Roger's point, when you get two, three years down the road that there aren't places that you might want to be exposed there. But you know, we're sort of out of the frying pan and into the fire with the reopening story. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because you kind of uh, jumped to my next um, kind of topic I just wanted to touch on. And that is, of course, it's been a little while since we heard the word Evergrande, but it was it was on the front page of many papers uh, and news outlets uh, a little while ago. And and I think maybe what people don't uh, realize, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I mean, properties are really the main investments uh, area for, for Chinese people. So as you allude to, I mean, there is still some work to be done there. And I'm just kind of uh, wondering if, if you think that, that we still, have, I mean, that it could still derail things a bit, um, the fact that they may have not kind of fully grappled with uh, 
all the real estate uh, that they managed to build back then. Yeah, this is one of the reasons I think the comparison between Xi and Mao is a bad one, because Mao really didn't like negative data, and Mao would kill anyone who gave him negative data, and so millions of people died in famines because nobody was was willing to tell Mao what he didn't want to hear. Xi Jinping seems to have changed his minds his mind on three major things. He changed it on zero COVID. He changed it on punishing the property developers. So he's gone from punishing the property developers to, I need to support them. I need to make sure that the market doesn't go crazy because Chinese people are going to be in the streets if I don't. And then there's the crackdown on the tech sector too. That's also seems to be gone. The Chinese government came out and said the tech sector crackdown is literally over a couple weeks ago. So for all those reasons, I think you see Xi Jinping realizes the precarious state that he's in. And now he's moving the Chinese Communist Party to fix some of these self, I wouldn't call them errors. I understand why they wanted to get tough on the property developers. But it's very difficult, as you said, like if most Chinese people are investing in real estate, and you're going to uh, uh, crack down on the property developers, it's the average Chinese citizen who's going to get screwed. And that doesn't work for the Chinese Communist Party. So I think that they will muddle through. I think that they have the tools that they need to figure it out. And I think that they have shown a government that for a communist regime is fairly flexible and relatively responsive. Um, but I, I don't think we should also downplay um, the seriousness of the issue. I mean, China has to get to a place where Chinese people are as comfortable investing in the Shanghai Stock Exchange as they are in real estate. And none of us would, would do that. I mean, we'd want hard assets too if we were in China. So getting the, Chi the average Chinese citizen there, it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. You said this thing about the difference between Xi and Mao, and you said that Mao didn't want, didn't like people who were having a different opinion with him. We had Professor Sh uh, Susan Shirk on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she is, you know, a China expert and has been traveling to China since the seventies, and and uh, and she was telling us about how she had been purging, um, I think was the word she used, um, and basically removed the opposition to President Xi to the point, I think she mentioned about 5 million people. Uh, so, I mean, he's also done a pretty good job in removing uh, opposition. I wonder if, what, what do you think, Jacob, in terms of his ambitions on the geopolitical scene? Let's forget about the economy and so on and so forth. But I mean, do you think that this concentration of power, I mean, what do you think that that might mean? Because there are quite a lot of division in terms of whether they think China wants to expand their borders or not. Um, what's your view on that? Well, he certainly has purged people, but he's also broadly popular in China for purging people because a lot of the people that he purged got rich off of corruption. So some of them are political rivals, but some of them are fat cats who just got to drive Lamborghinis and do sorts of crazy things in Shanghai when, as I said, hundreds of millions of people were making 3 to $5 a day in the interior. So I wouldn't discount the fact that he's purged people, but also remember that Xi's family suffered from Mao's craziness. Xi's father spent time in one of those camps and she grew up, you know, in this sort of environment environment where because of how Mao lashed out against people and had this ideology of continuing revolution that people like Xi had a really bad time. So Xi absolutely wants centralized control. And I think he wants that centralized control to deal with all the things that we just talked about. But he's trying to balance between not becoming Mao. Maybe he can't do it. Maybe it'll all fall apart for him. But I think he's aware of some of the history there. And I think we don't give him enough credit if we don't think about his background and think about how that plays in. In terms of China's geopolitical ambitions, I mean, this is like one of the biggest questions in the world right now. Um, I don't think that China wants to displace the United States as a, as a global hegemon. I just don't. I think that China wants to be a central economy in the world. I think that it wants 
um, control over its sovereign borders. It absolutely thinks Taiwan is part of China. It probably thinks Vladivostok is part of China too. It would like to take all of the lands that the European invaders took away from them back and put them under Chinese control. But I don't think that China, let's say in a world where China gets Taiwan and gets Vladivostok and greater China is completely united. I don't think then that Chinese aircraft carriers are going to come to the Gulf of Mexico and invade here in New Orleans where I'm sitting talking today. I, I just don't think that China has those types of ambitions. I think the United States sees China as a sort of potential rival on a global scale. And China is just trying to say, we don't want to challenge you globally. We do want to be top dog in all the places that we think are part of China. And we're not, you know, the United States is not willing to give them that for lots of reasons that we can go into. So there's also, you know, there's a delta between China's geopolitical ambitions and what it can do. A lot of people worry today about China invading Taiwan. I don't over the next two to five years because they don't have the ships and they don't have the planes. Wake me up when they can actually get more than 20,000 Marines to China, uh, excuse me, to Taiwan, and we can start talking about those types of those types of scenarios. So there's an ambition to be able to conquer Taiwan. In the here and now, they, they literally can't do it. They literally can't get the troops there in order to do it. So um, I, I honestly worry less about ambitions and more about capabilities. And from that point of view, China's incredibly weak. Now let's broaden it out a little bit, kind of go outside China, and then we can bring in Roger, I'm sure, for, for some of this. You know, we all uh, agree that China plays a, a big part or a big role in, in the world economy. And if we go back to the great financial crisis, they played an incredibly important role, I think, in igniting the uh, the, the global economy uh, after its uh, challenges. I'm just wondering whether you think they still have that ability today to play that role, or if if we're at a diff- different time now in terms of who can actually influence kind of global growth when especially when needed uh, perhaps uh in in other places well, what are your thoughts on this uh, Roger yes i think that you know when when we even when we talk about the reopening i've always said um which china is reopening is it the china that was growth at any cost which is effectively we're going to urbanize we're going to build cities we're going to populate them or is it the china which is now turning towards much more of an internal consumption model which is um, you know, when we look at things like the property sector, I think what they were actually doing was controlled explosions to see if they could deflate this thing sensibly. And it got a little bit out of control, so they stepped back. And they did that maybe a little bit more aggressively in the tech sector because it was you know, a little bit more concentrated in fewer hands. But ultimately, these weren't intentions to destroy. They were intentions to deflate and create a sustainable footing. And China has gone from, and they've realized that, the credit was needed in 2009, this credit impulse. They did it again um, during the the European debt crisis, the credit impulse picked up. And then again, after the um, global um, commodity and industrial profits recession of 2015, 2016, they were stepping away from a similar type of rise in the credit impulse in around about 2019. It had been going up. COVID hit. They had to just go, okay, supply side policies, we're going back to it. People went commodities once more. But actually, I think that was just a one-off. I think the reality is that China wants to move towards sustainable internal consumption. It will still hoover up commodities, but it wants to become a leader in green technologies. It doesn't necessarily want to build highways to anywhere. And that has a fundamentally different prospect for the rest of the world. So yes, they can still and still do grease the economy with total social financing, this credit, and the credit impulse ebbs and flows cyclically. 
But as 6.5% GDP today is different from 6.5% GDP growth five years ago for the global market, and we'll have less upward pressure on commodities. There will still be demand, but it won't be the sort of growth or rate of change of growth that we were used to that really, really spurred um, that sort of global, cyclical, global emerging market story. So I feel that China always has that potential, but I think that they are trying in a sensible way because you know emerging markets eventually emerge, 10% growth becomes 5% growth, eventually we'll settle at 3% growth. They are on that trajectory. It's no bad thing. But they want sustainability. And I think that what we saw, and you know, it goes back to that as investors, people wanted to see the debt market in China implode within a few months. And they were disappointed because when it started to get a little bit dicey, China stepped back and said, okay, maybe that's enough. We need to do this in even more control. But what I don't think this means is I don't think it means we're going to see a reboost of all the terrible things that created too much debt, too much leverage, too many rich individuals through property. I think what we're going to see is we're not letting this deflate in a way which is painful for the middle class, but we do want to see this become more affordable for the lower middle class who want to get onto these ladders. So for me, China is a changing beast, and the reopening China is a different beast today than China of five years ago, and I don't think they're going back to that. I think they have changed direction, and they want to move towards a sustainable internal consumption model. If, if I could just piggyback on, on what Roger said, I mean, one of the anecdotes I always use when I, when I talk about this is that when you had the 08 financial crisis, the People's Bank of China and the United States Treasury officials, they were on the phone with each other. They were talking to each other. They were coordinating economic policy. They were trying to figure out how to manage contagion and make sure the global economy didn't go in the tank. Can you imagine if the United States and China had done that around the pandemic? hadn't generally uh, jealously guarded information about what was then an epidemic in China because they were worried about it being used in the trade war, worrying about it being used as a sign of weakness. So when we're talking about that multipolar world, that move away from a globalized world, I think the COVID-19 pandemic is the perfect example. And it's the real sort of black and white, okay, we're in a different time frame right now, because if we'd had 08 kind of geopolitics, we probably could have managed this and maybe kept this inside of China. And this is where the geo part of the politics is really important. Some countries are going to benefit from China reopening. Some countries are not. The United States, probably not. China's going to do everything they can to not be dependent on the United States and not benefit U.S. farmers and their agricultural commodities or U.S. companies with access to all those hundreds of millions of people in the Chinese middle class that McKinsey was talking about for so long. But if I'm a Brazilian farmer who sells soybeans or corn, I'm feeling great. I see that China just approved uh, Brazilian corn for import a couple of weeks ago. I see that China doesn't want to import soybeans from the United States anymore. So suddenly I'm feeling great because I'm going to be the benefactor of China reopening in that sense. So we're getting to a place where if you're in a country that has nominally good or even pragmatic relations with China, you get to enjoy that reopening. If you're a U.S. company that is based in China right now, Maybe you have some time because they're dependent on whatever technology you have or something like that. But as soon as they can jettison you, they will. And they're not interested in being part of a, a global order that makes them do all the things that the United States is trying to make them do in the context of the trade war. So that emergence of different blocks and rival spheres of influence, that's all also going to depend. Like Roger makes the point about which China is reopening and who are they reopening to? It's not going to be to everyone. No, I think that's a that's a that's a great point uh, as well. Now we may 
get to this uh, globalization, deglobalization debate uh, in, in, in a few minutes. But before, the other thing you mentioned earlier, uh, Jacob, today in terms of uncertainty, you mentioned Russia, and of course it's very evident for everyone to, to see. So my question is not so much, uh, at least right now, about Russia itself, but it's actually between the relationship between Russia and China. You know, where, where do you think it stands and where do you think it's heading in terms of that? They're not natural allies. From China's perspective, Russia is just one of several European powers like the United Kingdom and Portugal and everybody else who took advantage of China's century of humiliation. Um, China and Russia fought a brief border war in the 1960s. Um, there was no love lost between Mao and Stalin and the Chinese Communist Party and the Soviet Communist Party and all those other things. That said, the United States has said that Russia and China are pure competitors and that U.S. foreign policy is going to be geared towards resisting the threat that the two of them pose. So China doesn't want to lose Russia um, but aside from all of its commodity wealth for the simple fact that Russia is another balancer on the chessboard with the United States. If Russia were to collapse into nothingness or become a Western ally, suddenly China feels more isolated. So I think that China has every interest in making sure that Russia doesn't fall apart. On the other end, and I've been saying this since um, Putin invaded Ukraine, and it's it's I think it was accurate then and it's accurate today, um, Vladimir Putin has transformed Russia from a great power into China's gas station. That is its greatest hope for its future right now. China has all the leverage. It has all the power. It has all the economic influence over Russia going forward. And I think Russia is just going to become a commodities depot for the things that China wants. And China will use Russia as long as it sees that it's in its interest to do so, and for as long as the United States is going to treat Russia and China like the same problem, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, China and Russia will sort of be strange bedfellows who, for now, will cooperate with each other. Yeah. So, so Roger, let me throw this at you. Um, you know, this whole globalization, deglobalization debate, uh, and again, I, I certainly want to hear sort of uh, uh, Jacob's view whether we are heading towards uh, deglobalization. Um, but but from your perspective, are we? And if we are, what does that mean for, for the sort of markets in a global macro sense? Well, I think the, the area of sort of biggest contention and something which I've always said in terms of currencies is where a lot of this sort of geopolitical thinking um, starts to formulate. And I think the biggest um, kind of discussion that goes on here, and you'll hear it all the time, is this, you know, the dollar is dead. Is the dollar going to die? And what becomes a real problem here um, when we're thinking about this landscape is there's a, a magnificent difference between the relevance of the dollar in the global economy and the actual level or price of the dollar. And you'll often hear people saying the dollar's going to zero, which is sort of ridiculous. What they mean is it's becoming less and less important. Well, it might be at the margin, but these things, again, these are glacial changes when you're talking about replacing something which has taken decade upon decade to get to where it is, to dismantle that, you don't do that in a couple of years. But people see the weakness in the dollar over the last kind of couple of quarters, particularly last quarter, and they go, ah, you know, there it is. It's nothing to do with that. This is simply its policy changes, relative policy changes versus Europe and the um, uh, you know the energy crisis or lack of um, for the European markets. Now, my own feeling here is the biggest risk is that as fewer dollars trade in the global system, either because we start to trade some commodities outside of the dollar system, or because we go into a recession and there are fewer dollars changing hands, that could actually mean the dollar goes up in value because there are. X trillion, I think it's 12 trillion, according to the BIS, of cross-border dollar-denominated debts outside of the US, with many arguing that double that size off balance sheet. 
That doesn't go away. That's a short dollar position. And if there are a few dollars going around greasing the world trade system, then there's going to be a scrabble to get those dollars to pay off your debts, which are in dollars. That's just a function of the way that the current global funding system is set up. It's nothing really to do with the total relevance of the dollar. And actually, as the dollar falls in total volume trading on a daily basis, that risks that the value of the dollar could go up. But that, that's sort of that's the crux that we've got here. So fluctuations in the dollar today are nothing to do with that relative importance of the dollar. What I do think is, yeah, I mean, I think that it makes sense that if we become more regionalized and less globalized so that we have these pods of regions or pods of groups that trade with each other, they will want to trade in whatever their common currency is. That also makes sense. Um, but it's, I think this is going to be a lot, again, there's going to be a lot of people very disappointed about how slowly these changes take place. And I would much rather trade you know, what Jacob Powell, what Jay Powell says about where he thinks interest rates are going for my view on the dollar and the euro than whether I think it's the end of globalization. Yeah, oh, cool. Jacob, do you have a few words before we jump into maybe some more market-specific type uh, Yeah, I, I, I think Roger just about nailed all of it, um, but I'll, I'll just say two very short things. The first is, you know, um, you know, yes, globalization is dead, but we're also just re-globalizing, to Roger's point. Like, there's going to be more regional integrations between some of these groups and between some of these spheres. If you look at trade as a percentage of GDP for countries like China or even like India, that's been declining since 2008, and that's a real example of globalization receding. It's also been increasing in some areas, though. If you're a country like Mexico or you're a country like Brazil, trade's actually being is becoming a more important part of your economy, and that's because all those companies that sent their jobs to China, because that was where they you had the cheapest labor and the 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 best incentives and the rule of law and all those other sorts of things. Now they're looking for different places. So Brazil, Mexico, all these other parts of the world are actually now getting a little bit of a globalization dividend, even though we're in, I think, the beginning stages of an era of deglobalization. The second thing I would just say. I agree with everything that Roger just said about, you know, you, we can talk about deglobalization, these highfalutin terms. It's very, very hard to trade on that. One thing I would say, though, is that if the deglobalization thesis is right, and if you see companies uh, moving factories from one place or to the other, or people have to source commodities from a smaller set of countries than sort of the global menu that they had before, then you're going to have supply side driven inflation. I think one of the issues with inflation right now is yes, there's demand side and yes, there was the pandemic and yes, it was a decade of sort of easy money. All that is in uh, the inflation that we've seen. But there's also just as if we're rejiggering supply chains around the world, maybe inflation is going to be a little bit more, a little more resilient than people are thinking. And also the central bank's toolkits can't do anything about it. Interest rates is not going to help you rebuild a supply chain from China to Mexico. And if you hold off the CapEx to do that because you have interest rates too high, maybe you engineer some kind of recession that shouldn't be there in sort of the near term. So I think understanding the extent to which it's supply side, the extent to which it's demand side, the extent to which companies say they're moving versus if they're actually moving, that all gives you data that you need um, if you're actually trying to construct trades on a week or month long time frame. Yeah, no, very good. And now, as I said earlier, um, I do think that there is sort of a, an, an easy way to visualize some of these uh, forces that are intersecting with each other and and that is through the the the, the global markets and um, recently we had certainly one of my favorite uh, commodity experts Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs on the show uh, and we also had some conversations last year with uh, Adam Rosenzweig and they both seem to agree that 
commodities could move a lot higher from their perspective, not least energy, uh, but maybe even also food, uh, even though I do take note of what you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Jacob. So I, I think Jeff Curry went as far as saying that he believes that the commodity super cycle is still in force, even though we've had some corrections. Um, so I was just curious, and you, either one of you can kind of you know, take this for, uh, for a spin, um, wh- whether you think that actually, uh, and, and to your point about, you know, inflation being a little bit more sticky or resilient, I mean, do you think that we could actually see another spurt to the upside in global commodities for for these various reasons, uh, the fact that the world just is different and it's perhaps harder to get the commodities that we uh, were used to? I mean, if I kick off on that one, I mean, I think as Jeff said, decarbonization is with us, whether we like it or not. And it is a major generational multi-decade factor that we have to to build in. And I think somebody, uh, again, anecdotally, so I don't know if it's true, but I, I heard that to go to reach our decarbonization goals, we'll need to dig up as much copper in the next 30 years as we've dug up in history. So it's probably not doable. Um, so this is going to be a pressure. So fundamentally, there is an enormous tailwind behind a significant number of commodities. And we're, you know, one of the sort of primary reasons for the supply side problems that we have today is that since the commodity industrialization bust of 2015-16, and with the greenification concepts that have come through, we have seen underinvestment. And you can see these things in things like the ETS for oil services, oil production versus just energy majors. The energy majors over the last two years have bounced. The others have bounced, but very anemically. They have been left behind. This has been a problem of, you know, pure commodities. Prices are going up, but volumes have not been there because we've not been able to get the volume out of the ground. So it's been a price on the physical more than it's been a real play on a lot of the um, uh, commodity equities and the services and industrial companies that that look after them. But that said, we also have to be cognizant that um, commodity inflation is normally only a short-term impact on true inflation. You know, it's more, I think of it as, is it commodity inflation or is it higher price? And there's inflation is a subset of higher prices. There's lots of ways you can have higher prices of which inflation is one of them only. We've had supply shocks which are causing higher commodity prices. We saw stormingly higher commodity prices between 2003 and 2008. We got to 150 on WTI oil, which inflation adjusted is significantly higher than the highs that we saw, but we only got CPI of 5%. Commodities, high commodity prices can be subsumed within to CPI data without causing a massive painful hit, as long as it doesn't get into... Um, into wages that spiral out of control. So that was a long-winded way of saying, I think there is a great structural story for commodities. It's multi-decade. There has been underinvestment. There is greenification, carbonization, stories which are there, but it's not a one-way ticket. And if we start to get month-on-month increases in, in commodity prices impacting inflation again, the Fed has to go harder again. They will want to tighten financial conditions again. And almost every single time that we've seen a recession in the short term, this is that trading view, that recession supersedes the long-term tailwind of that greenification story. So the way I look at this is that I still think a recession is either coming naturally or more likely will have to be manufactured 
because these bounces in commodities, and you will get a better opportunity to get into a lot of these commodity plays through that next true slowdown or recession. And I don't think it's happened yet. I think it's still ahead of us. And I think that's a fair point. And I want to hear uh, Jacob's uh, views as well. But one thing I, and and I know you cut it off a little bit earlier than maybe I would have done for, for my question at least, and that is the policy, what I find interesting about the commodity side is that it's obviously, a, it's it's about volume, right? And when I uh, spoke with Jeff, uh, he made the point that inflation is really driven by low-income groups. And the response from policymakers back in 08 was really to, you know, austerity and remove credit and all of that stuff. But this time around, at least up until now, yeah, okay, interest rates have gone up, but we're pumping liquidity to the people who are the most in, in most need, which is obviously a very noble thing to do and, 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 and so on and so forth. But it changes the dynamic when it comes to commodities specifically, because if they go and spend that money on things that, you know, on goods, the volume changes. And 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 that I think, I, I don't know uh, how it's going to play out, but but it is an interesting observation about the difference in policy response this time around. Yeah, I mean, I just, I'll just add one more line there. And I think you know, the way I summarize exactly what Jeff was saying is that, you know, it's that shift from capital the wealthy and monetary, to fiscal, the politics and uh, and labor. And that's the shift. So fiscal gives money to labor, gives money to the working person, and that's inflation. As he's saying, in the 1970s, it was uni- unionization that helped drive it then. So yes, I would agree with that. And I think it's this case of, are we seeing this geopolitical shift away from monetary and, and capital towards fiscal and labor. And I think we are, and that could be where you get the stickier long-term inflation from. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts, sir? I, I love this conversation because the irony is that now Roger's the one thinking in decades, and I'm going to think much more short-term because I don't think you can talk about commodities at that level. And I don't think all commodities are created equal. The price of soybeans is completely different than the price of copper, is completely different than the price of cobalt, and has all sorts of different variables that connect it. So just two very small examples. Over on the CI side, Roger and I have not talked about this, but at, at Cognitive Investments, where I'm a partner and director of geopolitical analysis, we are long copper right now. We are not long copper because of the copper super cycle and because we think over the next 10 years we're going to have to get all this copper out of the ground. It's because Peru, the number two largest copper exporter in the world, is under a state of emergency and might be headed towards a military coup, maybe even a civil war, if you believe some of the Peruvian analysts, experts that are out there. And the Peruvian copper supply chain then bleeds into the Chilean copper supply chain. And suddenly, two of these huge suppliers of copper to the world, they're offline for a couple of weeks or months. And what does that mean? So we're sort of thinking about that. And that's a very well-defined sort of, yes, there's the broader you know commodity super cycle trend, but I'm not going to buy copper today and hold it for 20 years. I'm going to look for those moments where the geopolitics goes with the macro cycle and lines up. Another where I haven't I haven't been able to land on a thesis yet, but I've been speaking to a lot of agriculture audiences here in the United States in the last couple of months. And this is where energy and food come together because, you know, we only eat 55 or 60% of the food that we grow in the world. A lot of a lot of the rest of it is used in biofuels or even in animal feed. And in the United States right now, folks that are growing soybeans are wondering if the EPA is going to increase quotas for renewable diesel because they want to then sell, they want to sort of have soybeans have their ethanol moment of the 1990s. And suddenly, instead of sending their soybeans to China for China to crush them however they want, they want to crush them here in the United States, sell the soybean oil to all 
all these crushing facilities that want to create renewable diesel and biodiesel and these other things. The byproduct of that is that suddenly you have a bunch of extra soybean meal that is just sitting there. So if you're a hog producer or a poultry producer, are you just looking at abundant supplies of cheap feed that weren't wasn't there even five, 10 years ago? And all circling back to, is the United States government really going to do that when it's not energy insecure? Ethanol policy in the 1990s was because the United States was hopelessly dependent on the Middle East for oil. We're not dependent on anyone for oil, natural gas, anything anymore. So are we really going to grow soybeans to create renewable diesel instead of going to things like hydrogen or nuclear, some of these other sort of interesting things? And I think there's a trade there probably in the next three to six months, depending on what you think the EPA is going to do and whether Biden is going to castigate ExxonMobil on the one hand, but then say, oh, I'm going to support, you know, sort of soybean, renewable diesel, biodiesel policies, which all of these U.S. oil companies are embedded within in the United States system itself. So I think when you get into commodities, the opportunities in commodities, you, you, you need that sort of broad view. And I think it's generally accurate to say, yes, we're going to need more of, of lots of these different types of commodities. But I think the opportunities are, are in those short-term areas where you can find either geopolitical disruptions or policy variances where you can create opportunities. And it's also, we don't necessarily know which of these commodities is going to be important going forward. I personally don't think electric vehicles really scale. So yes, the price of cobalt is sky high today. The fact that 70% of it is in the Democratic Republic of Congo probably tells you we're either going to find an alternative or that's not going to work. So like you're not going to be holding cobalt futures. I don't even think you can hold cobalt futures. But if you could, you wouldn't be holding cobalt futures for the next five years because that just doesn't make sense. Um, so I, I think there's opportunity in commodities. And I think there's very interesting opportunities to fuse geopolitics with commodity stories. But it's, it's almost the inverse of what we were talking about before, where the commodity market tells you the macro story and geopolitics is like, hey, it's the next two months in Peru. Let's just figure that out, and maybe there's a trade to express there. Now we're going to switch back to the long-term view, Jacob, so maybe you are going to feel uh, comfortable about that because uh, we're going to jump to equities as we start to uh, wound up the, the conversation a little bit here because Stanley Drockenmiller famously came out, I think, last end of last year in a CNBC interview saying, well, he could see stocks really just tra trading in a in a big range for the next decade or so. Nothing really that's uh, going to happen. And so I'm kind of curious, and maybe this is probably a question more for you, Roger, but I'm curious in terms of big picture stuff, which obviously our audience uh, also loves to hear about. You know, well, what are your thoughts about the prospect for uh, all of these changes that we see? How how could they end up impacting uh, you know, equities in, in this case? I think it's what, what we're sort of looking at there. I think what people are alluding to is an increase in uh, macro volatility. And what I mean by that is we've been used to 10 years between cycles. So was it 1991 to 2000, 2000 2008, 2008 to 2020? Um, it feels like if you've got inflation, which is slightly sticky and slightly high, you're going to have interest rates which are going up, going down, or cyclicality shortens itself. And therefore, instead of having these very, very long and extended and supported by monetary policy uh, bull markets, what you get is you get the, the sell-off, and some, some of these will be a little bit longer. This is what happened in the 60s and 70s. You had a series of ups and downs. I think this is the sort of analogy that Druckenmiller was talking about. And, and I've always thought this is a, a more of a hit-and-run market, which is you're going to get some very, very good upside. But I don't think you're going to get the sort of two, three times off the lows to where we were and doubling the previous peak. 
it might be a little bit more like we saw sort of 2000, 2008, and then we obviously went to the races up, went to the races after that. But I think this will be much more. You ha- you trade it. You don't sit there and think for a ten to fifteen year view. You basically sit there and you you plan for the worst, hope for the best. You go into something thinking this might be a one year rally. If it becomes two and becomes three, great. But you don't sit there, put your money in, and walk away because you might have to constantly trade this. It's, it means I think everyone's got to be more active. I think we the markets will become much more active at a point where they become intrinsically more passive. And at this moment in time in the US, something like 57% of assets are rules-based passively run versus actively managed by you know your classic old, old school managers. I think that shift will move back. But again, it will be a slow shift. We will not suddenly go from 57% passive to 40% passive in a year. But I think that's where it goes. So for me, it's a case of it, markets become more cyclical. They become more volatile. It doesn't mean that volatility indices like the VIX suddenly go through the roof, but you get you get shortened cycles, much more tradable cycles, and therefore individual investors have to be a little bit more actively involved in these markets. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I want to maybe um, kind of uh, leave you with, uh, with a question in terms of the fact that there were so many things we could have talked about today, and it's kind of hard to narrow down uh, two large subjects uh, on their own. So uh, m- maybe, Jacob, from your point of view, is there anything that we left out and that you think it's important to uh, to just touch on um, before we close down? I just think that at the geopolitical level, the the region that everybody says they want to hear about, but then when you actually talk about it, you don't get the number of clicks on the podcast you put out at the article that you write about is Latin America. Um, Latin America is the region that I think is going to sort of tack more to the United States and to the extent the United States is able to maintain its status as a global power, it's going to depend in large part on how it's able to, I think, to shift away from parts of East Asia and more towards Latin America. Um, So, you know, I I think that you need to be spending a lot more time thinking about Brazil. And I think we need to be spending lots more time talking about Mexico or Chile or even places like Colombia. Um, These are places that most um, English papers, even the papers that are local there, don't do a very good job talking about, right? When you think about Mexico, you probably think about cartels and tequila. And, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you know who the president of Mexico is. You don't think about, well, what are Mexican labor reforms doing to profit margins for U.S. companies that are operating? rating there. Uh, What does Brazil's sort of long-trending lower interest rates relative to its baseline mean for maybe a generation of new Brazilian entrepreneurs who until now have lived in a very conservative society where a small number of people owned most of the land and most of the wealth? Is Peru really about to come apart at the seams? Does that have any regional implications either for uh, Brazil and Argentine economic prospects or for the lithium triangle, which is right there in the center of all this, or for copper and some of these other commodities? So I would say that if you're in the English-speaking world, if you are wary of China and Russia, and you should be, there's a lot of uncertainty there. We should be spending a lot more time actually digging into Latin America and talking about it, because I think that that, I think that's a story that just isn't being told um, very well in global media. No, I love that point. Roger, what about, uh, what about you? What, uh, what, what did we not talk about yet? But something which slightly echoes that, which is, is, um, are we going to see the leadership battle in equities move from the US? And if so, is it going to be to emerging markets, as many people expect? And if so, which ones? Because you know, we've seen this before. 1989 was a peak in Japan relative to everywhere. 1999 was a peak basically in Europe relative to everywhere. 2008 was emerging markets. 
and then recently post-COVID, is that the U.S.? People are saying now that's the U.S. is over, but normally the phoenix rises out of the ashes of a sell-off or a recession, which hasn't actually happened yet. And are we going to move into an environment where that tech sector-driven, that you know, mega-cap U.S.-driven outperformance has now ended? I think it has, but I don't believe that that means we should just discard the high-quality tech names. They're going to do well. They're just going to do well in a way that any good company should do well. I think that there will be an opportunity to move into um, specific parts of emerging markets. I don't think this will be like 2001 to 2003, 2008, which was buy anything because China's buying up everything from emerging markets. It's going to be about diversification within emerging markets and maybe even diversification within, for instance, Europe. It's going to be pick countries, not regions, but it's going to be, and this is what I think is exciting for macro, is that it's not going to be buy US tech, close your eyes and go away for 10 years. There is going to be far more choice. You've got more, far more choice in fixed income markets than you had for so many years. And I think there will be much more opportunities to say that country will do well, that country will do well, that bond market will do well. Whereas before it was one trade and it was all based on US monetary policy and it's basically tech with bonds going, bond yields falling, bonds rising. I think that's changed to something much more dynamic, something much more exciting and with far more opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I, I do actually think that we are heading into a much more divergent world and not so synchronized um, as, as it used to be uh, a, a few decades ago. So uh, great place to uh, end our conversation, at least for now. Uh, Jacob and Roger, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for doing this uh, today. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure all our listeners will as well. And before we go... Let me just encourage you to go and follow Jacobs and Roger's work. I will, of course, put links in today's show notes because, as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before that you stay well-informed. From me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.